Welcome to Be Customer-Led, where we'll explore how leading experts in customer and employee experience are navigating organizations through their own journey to be customer-led and the actions and behaviors employees and businesses exhibit to get there. And now, your host, Bill Stagos. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another week of Be Customer Led. This is your host, Bill Stakos. I've got a really special guest for us this week. I know we always have special guests, but this one, this person is really, really interesting and in, in doing some cool things in the marketplace. Teresa Kane is like a really interesting individual. So she is Director of Product Management, User Experience Design for a company called TreviPay. And we're going to find out a little bit more about TreviPay. But she's also the founder and CEO of Lucid Startup Consulting. Now, what Lucid does is really interesting. They coach women-led startups to help launch their businesses into success. And, and Teresa will work on ideation, product strategy, roadmapping, research, design, all this stuff. And Teresa and I connected on this concept of design sprints, which she's doing a lot through Lucid. Teresa, welcome to the show. Can't wait to get into this topic with you. It's super important. I'm so excited to have you on. Thanks for having me, Bill. This is this is great. Yeah, it's gonna be a lot of fun. I think this will be it's gonna be a really interesting show that our listeners are gonna love. Before we get into it, though, I ask every guest, tell us about your journey and what were some of the differentiating factors in your career, and we'll get into then Trevi Pay and and Lucid after that. Perfect. Yeah. So my journey has been pretty interesting. So I've been fortunate enough to be part of the the product journey my whole career. And for those that are familiar with waterfall versus agile processes, I, I was able to do a lot of waterfall for many years and moving, moving on to agile. And as part of that journey, while I am a millennial, I'm an old millennial. And I think a lot of what's gone on the last 15 years in my career journey is this millennial generation trying to solve problems faster, trying to automate more and really bring that into the changes that are happening to technologies and solutions. So most of the organizations that I've worked for across Fortune 100 and 500 companies has really been on automating processes to improve that experience for users. Awesome. Awesome. So you've been at TreviPay for a little bit. What does TreviPay do? Just for our listeners who are not familiar with the platform, because you guys are in a lot of businesses, frankly, right? Yeah. With TreviPay, we, we recently rebranded re in, in the past year and a half, but I've been with TreviPay for four years. Before a year and a half ago, we were called MSTS, and uh, we rebranded to TreviPay to really, no one really knew what MSTS had meant, and we were kind of getting outside of our white label solution and putting the TreviPay brand out there more. And TreviPay was, the name was named after the Trevi Fountain in Rome, Italy. So lots of really great history there. We're an international client. We're in 27 different currencies. We have 6 billion transactions. And what we focus on is a global B2B billing and invoicing solution. So our ultimate goal is really to help these businesses grow by lending credit to their customers and in fact, growing their programs as well. Awesome. Awesome. And about a year, a little over a year ago, you started your own company on the side, right? Everyone, I feel like everyone's got a side hustle right now, but this is not, it feels like a little bit more than a side hustle given our conversations. You started Lucid. What was sort of the genesis for you behind Lucid? What was out there in the marketplace that you were seeing and you're like, I think I need to help people here? Yeah. So 
I think first and foremost, I've, I've coached startups for years and I'm sure you've done a little bit of yourself as well. You're always helping others, kind of always giving back. So uh, ultimately, I decided what this would be really interesting to do something a little more focused. And I've always really been involved in, in helping women and helping girls get into the industry. I previously had volunteered for years for a, a project called the for a women's organization in, in Kansas City that was called the Alexandra Girls Grant Project, where you lend out money to girls that are kind of growing in that growing in something new that they're trying to explore. And that really got my start into helping to give back to women in the community. Mm. And I've kind of taken that into the IT side of things. And so with that, there are not as many women-led startups as there are men-led startups. And I'd like to change that. I'd like to be that person that helps take someone that's at that idea stage and say, you know what, Like, I need help getting funding. I don't know how yeah. to go about this. And I talked about automation a bit earlier. And one of the really interesting that's changed, interesting things that have changed in the last five years is uh, getting startup funding is becoming easier too. There are now multiple web and mobile applications you can put your bid out in. So the dynamic has really changed, and that's really where I got my my start of creating that program was helping women-led startups. But I've also kind of morphed that a bit to go beyond that and help create workshops for different content that people are needing training for, women mm-hmm. and beyond. That's awesome. I, I want to get into that a little bit now with you. I mean, w- you and I, when we first connected, this is going back several months now, but we were on this topic of design sprints. You don't really hear that that much, that term. I've heard it in a past life. You're coaching and you're training people on this. For our listeners who have never heard of the term design sprint, though, like how do you define that? Like, What does that mean to you? Yeah. So in a simple way, a design sprint is really a a faster way to solve problems. So whether that problem is an organizational problem or a problem related to your product, what you're ultimately doing is getting a group of stakeholders, usually not more than 20 people. And you're talking about the problem and you're coming up with a solution and sometimes even a very, very great design on how you'll go about solving that solution. Very cool. I want to get into that a little bit more. Well, let's start at a high level on that, maybe. When do companies need design sprints? Like, is it just any business problem? Or like, what, what are the right kind of spots in a, maybe even a growth of an organization where you've seen sort of the biggest impact? Like, what types of... And then finally, this is the third question in here, like, let's talk about what those impacts are. You talked about sort of saying, okay, we're solving the problem. We're working backwards from the problem. Essentially, you're working backwards from the customer, essentially, or maybe even the business. Where do you say, like when you're working with those individuals who want to do this type of work, when do you know that they're ready or at a good point to do that? And then what kind of benefits do you see outside of even have like a low fidelity or maybe even a high fidelity kind of prototype coming out of those sprints? But what kind of great output do you see as a result of design sprints? Sure. So it, it's actually been pretty interesting. I mentioned of coach anywhere from startups to organizations that are in, in the Fortune 100 space. Yeah. And so with that, you have a, a different mindset mentality too. So the large organizations, a lot of organizations have adopted KPIs and OKRs. And I know you're familiar like yep. with those as well. Um, so with that, we're setting these large organizational goals, these KPIs. And ultimately, the KPIs are what's driving the organizational goal. The OKRs are feeding into that. And oftentimes, yep. what is lost in those definitions is how we go execute. 
And so a design sprint is a really great use case when you're setting those OKRs and those KPIs and you're wanting to problem solve how you'll go create a solution and hit that goal. And even if that goal is something as simple as increasing revenue, you need to be able to solution it to create a goal to get there. Now, that's kind of an organizational goal, just broader for those that aren't as deep in the product and technology and UX side. Mm. Uh, For those in that side of things, design sprints make a really good case when you're trying to create a new feature in your product. So you're able to, again, get that same set of stakeholders together and start to talk about what you know about the customer or the problem that's being talked about. And I've, in the past year alone at TreviPay, we have ran over 20 design sprints. And what's really great is I'll talk about it a bit later, but I've kind of created a concept of a two hour design sprint of which you no longer need five days, which is like really popular with Jake Knapp and the team at Google and Mm. also very successful. I enjoyed doing both, but there are different problems that you're solving. Yeah. And, but when you're looking at a feature and you're trying to move fast, you need to move pretty quickly. You need to get it scheduled sometime in the next week, maybe the next three weeks. Two hour design sprints allow you to kind of do that much quicker and be able to come out with a faster outcome. And what does that faster outcome mean? You're probably going to make revenue faster. You're going to make your customers happier. And that's what's really fun about design sprints. Yeah, and, and also because you're bringing sort of the customer or, or that problem in the customer's voice into that process, into that sprint your technical debt comes down too, right? I mean, and you're, I, I would Absolutely. assume that your throughput goes up as a team. I mean, there's all sorts of benefits associated with that, right? Yeah, and you touched on something really great. So I, I always bring in engineers, architects. If you're not bringing in the folks that are gonna be working on it, mm-hmm. uh, you're, gonna, you're gonna lose your time. So that's the benefit there. Um, but then I also bring in clients. So I've, I've had a number of clients participate in these design sprints and for, for some solutions, was able to roll it out in the next sprint cycle. We're on a two-week sprint wow. cycle with Agile. And that's a pretty powerful statement to go from a two-hour design sprint to releasing in one to two weeks. With that design, we came up together as a team. But yeah. That's an awesome story. Oftentimes, and I've, been, I've worked with Agile teams in the past. Oftentimes, yes, they're kind of releasing kind of these features quickly, but... A lot of times that what I've seen is these teams getting stuck in that two-week sprint and not doing maybe that work up front and that kind of design sprint maybe model. I'm curious, outside of like the engineers and others, who else do you like to bring into that process? Is it marketing? Is it sales? Do you like try to keep those folks out of that? Or like, where have you found, like what is the right mix of folks or roles where you found the most success in that design sprint model. Sure. So you're hitting on a a really great, great note. So stakeholder buy-in, right? So all the different groups that you just mentioned, sales, marketing, I talked about engineering, account management, those are really your stakeholders. And actually, the more the merrier. So I have run design sprints that have had over over 50 people in them. But your your sweet spot is not over 50. That's too many cooks in the kitchen. But around 20 people, 20, 25, you get a couple stakeholders from every department. That's what makes for a really successful design sprint. And one of the things that's been interesting is the COVID pandemic has changed the entire landscape of design sprint. So that's actually what really allowed us to shorten it and make it completely virtual. So we're actually, those 20 design sprints I mentioned, we have run those up to 20 stakeholders, 100% virtual this past year. And so that's something that 
has really changed the landscape as mm. we don't really need an office anymore. And now that we're virtual, participants in Australia and other countries were able to come in and participate, which has never been possible because they weren't here physically. So. Very cool. I want to talk about like when you're working or when you're even coaching or working with folks inside TradePay or even outside through Lucid, what framework do you have? Or do you mind sharing some of the special sauce sure. a little bit maybe? Like what is your framework for setting these up, engaging people, like walk us through that, maybe like a, even like a typical engagement even, that would be really helpful for folks who yeah. kind of really, just I want to try and make it as practical as possible. Hopefully they reach out to you and say, hey, I need this. Like, can you do this for me? But walk us through that, like how you would approach maybe something like that. Sure. So I'm a really big fan of design thinking, which for those that aren't too familiar with design thinking, the biggest role is really empathy. So yeah. you're empathizing and understanding and learning before you're kind of coming up with a solution. And so the, the methodology is inspired by both design thinking, as well as I got to give credit to Jake Knapp and the team at Google, as mm. they created the concept of a design sprint, the five-day design sprint. And so really, it's kind of looking at the history altogether. How have we been solving design and problem solving for years? And so the number one step of that methodology is empathy. So you're really that group of stakeholders we just talked about. You're talking about, well, what is the problem? What do we know about the customers? If you're familiar with user personas, I'm, sure. I know that you are. User personas become a really integral part of that process because you already know who the customers are and the mm -hmm. users are that you're trying to solve for. Uh, so first, you kind of have this concept of understanding your customers. And then you're from there, you're kind of just ideating. Well, why do we think this is happening? What's going on with the situation? And ultimately, with these design sprints, what's really great is when you have these stakeholders from different departments, you come in, they're always wondering why why am I here today? Which you're explaining to them before they get there. But they'll usually come up with something that like, well, wait a second, you basically just came up with an idea we've never thought of before. Yeah. And that's really the goal, right? Is you are, you're getting experiences from different people in different departments that is probably going to help solve your problem faster. So, but the ultimate goal is you're co usually coming up with a concept. So, and this is actually my most favorite activity is having people kind of sketch what they think the solution is. And even people that aren't designers, I mean, you get some stick figures and then you always invite your design team in and they always go overboard and yeah. create a high fidelity concept and yeah. make everyone feel bad, but that's okay. That's okay too. <laughs> so no designers maybe early on in the first hour or something <laughs> like that. So when you're in that sprint, you got 20 people, are you breaking them off into like groups of three or four, you know, go off, come up with sort of a solution to the problem and then come back, right? Because like, design thinking, right? You're going out and then you're going in and going out and in, et cetera. How does that process work? Like, how do you manage that even virtually? Are, are you just doing like virtual rooms and then people come back in or like, and like, yeah. if you're running, if you're the one running it, like, how do you even manage that? That's got to be really complex. Yeah. It's kind of twofold. So one, when you have like 10 to 20 people, no, not usually, I don't usually do breakout rooms. Okay. Cause really you want every person to kind of come up with a concept on their own. And if you put someone in a group, you always have like one or two people in that group that are just aren't going to say anything and they're going to agree with another individual. But for the design sprints I've mentioned that I don't necessarily recommend having 50 people in a design sprint, but I've, I've definitely done it. And oftentimes I'll pull in, I've got a really fantastic head of UX, John Kelly at Trebipay. I'll pull him 
a lot of times. He's just as passionate, if not more, about design thinking as I am. And I've had him help tackle 50 plus workshops with me where we're kind of each managing different sections and breaking it out into groups. So Cool. Very cool. What I want to ask you about, because sometimes when my team and I, we've run these and sort of past lives, we often get like pushback, like in a couple of ways. One is you might get people saying to your point, like, why am I here? Or why should I even do this? What This is not my job. You also get people, I've been in, I've been in a sprint where someone said out loud, well, that's just a stupid idea like out loud. And I'm just like, oh, sweet Lord, right? Like what, it, that's not, let's re- revisit the, sort of the ground rules here. How do you manage that? One, the maybe the more senior person who's saying, this is not a good use of my time. Why would I ever do this? But then number two, like even in the room where you want those free flow of ideas, no matter how off the wall they are happening, right? And being discussed. How do you kind of manage that? Because those, I mean, those are two different, very, pro- very different problems, but like, I'm curious just to see how you might manage that. Yeah, I'd, I'd kind of kind of tackle that question in, in two areas. So one, what about the rules around it? And then two, kind of the more process of like the stakeholders that are coming in. So from a rule standpoint, first and foremost, rules are kind of like the number one agreement. So like when, before you even create the problem statement, I skipped over that in the beginning, I should have said, you're agreeing to rules, right? Like everyone has an, has an idea and every, everyone's idea is an opportunity. So you need to come in with an open mind and a positive point of view. Mm. So that's rule number one. And respect, like at most organizations, like respect and empathy is a huge part of our culture. And so we have not had those types of problems, but we are very like we set that expectation really of anyone we hire and all the processes we create. So that is like a huge part of making sure that we have that process through anything that we do, the workshops included. And it's gone so far, but I mentioned outside of Trevi Pay, meet all, all types of people. And I I've, I've have definitely had to manage a few conversations in that way. And really how you manage that is through validation. Like, okay, tell me more about why you mm-hmm. feel this is stupid or not important to you. And you understand where they're coming from. And in a way you're teaching them about empathy, but you're also hearing where they're coming from. And then you're kind of validating their concerns in a way. So I've had to do that and that's actually worked pretty well and created some some engagement out of it. And sometimes what they mean to say is, I don't agree with that problem statement. And mm-hmm. really you're kind of working them through that situation. But first and foremost, whether or not people want to attend to it. So a big part of this two-hour design sprint I've been talking about and doing workshops on is people are excited about it because it's only two hours. Oftentimes, I don't know how many five-day design sprints you participated in or ran, but less than 20% of the people could make all five days and it was very expensive. And there's no way you're going to pull your engineers off productive time for five days. Same with the executive team. They're not going to sit five days in there. They'll maybe sit in there for a handful of, of hours. So that's really kind of where this concept came in is no, you can make two hours and you will because you want this solution. So as the executive sponsor, they're going to attend because they want the outcome, which is probably going to be more revenue. Yeah. I love the concept of a two-hour design sprint, or even three hours, frankly, because you're, you're signaling to the business that we know time is precious. It is for all of us, right? Number one. Number two is, if we're bringing a lot of smart people together, we should be able to kind of solve for this in some way in a couple of hours, right? Which 
we don't often get to do everything. I feel like every meeting is 30 minutes back to back for eight hours straight, right? And number three, I think it says a lot from an outcome perspective when you can have even like a, a, an early prototype, let's call it, it just signals to the business like, wow, we can do this. Like this isn't that hard to do. And it's like so, so like time well invested. That's why I love condensing it. And it just, it, it also like, I, I love the five, I, like obviously I'm familiar with the five-day design sprint, but I think that the toolkit that we have as leaders and practitioners should be flexible. And I think that's also an important signal as well to the business. And that's why I love that you're doing, like you figured out. Teresa, when you say, before at the top of the show, you said, depending on the problem to solve, you might say, hey, we got to do this in five days or you know what, let's just do this in two hours. How do you differentiate the problems that deserve two hours versus five days? Sure. That's actually like, that's probably the number one question I get before I, I come into some of these, these workshops. So really a five-day design sprint, as I mentioned, they are really fantastic and valuable, but those are really meant for really large, complex problems. So I would consider that something like a, a business KPI where you have a very large problem you're trying to solve and you might have multiple deliverables out of that. And even as something that sounds simple, like we're going to go build a dashboard. Uh, well, a dashboard is actually pretty complex. You've got navigation, you've got different cards, you've got the data that's behind the dashboard. So something like building out a brand new concept of a dashboard should probably be a longer design sprint. It doesn't have to be five days. You could have, to your point, any amount of time, two hours, four hours, three days, five days. And I've probably run each of those as successful. It's about the outcome, right? But from there, the shorter amount of design sprints are really meant for problems that you're looking to turn on pretty quickly. So uh, the issue with five-day design sprints is it might take you three months to schedule everyone you need to in a room. And in our case, we were outgrowing our, our building before the pandemic. To even schedule a room would have been challenging enough. So it's, it's funny now. We have all the rooms we need, but we're not using them. <laughs> uh, right. No one's going to the okay. office yet. Yeah, but both two-hour design sprints or any amount of time that's shorter, again, those are meant for more simple simple problems like features that you're going to go tackle. So yeah. let's say you're going to go create an alert feature for a mobile app, and you don't know whether your users are, are going to use it or not. So that's something where you can kind of come in as a group and understand, well, first of all, how many, what percentage of users do you have using mobile versus web? What devices are they using? Are they signed up for any other alerts today? What's the likelihood? So those are the types of problems that you're basically talking about as a group to understand, okay, let's come up with this solution so we can release it. And, and usually it, it turns out that way. Now, one thing I didn't touch on, not every design sprint has a successful outcome. You could have a what you learn in that design sprint could be that you don't move forward mm. with something. So um, the goal isn't necessarily to have the output of a design, but is this really something we should go invest in as a business and take to that next level? Or do we just do this exercise to learn that we're not going to get our return on investment? Yeah, I think that's a crucial point, actually. I love that you brought that up because it's all learning at the end of the day, right? And that's what you're there to do, to learn, right? And to decide. And sometimes that decision is to not move forward because it, it doesn't make sense for whatever reason. When you're in the room, like a lot of what I see, a lot of agile teams are not trained on human-centered design or design thinking process. 
And at a, in a prior life, we had talked about this. We had trained every agile person, every agile team on the, on the design thinking process. We wanted them running their own sprints. It, I mean, we had a team of five design thinking folks on the team. You can't scale that, obviously. But if we trained everybody, that's different. Why don't you think more companies are doing that? Like what's holding them back? Because I mean, even if you think about sort of the agile methodology, there's a lot of design thinking thinking embedded in that, right? But why don't more companies pick up on the notion of integrating human-centered design and design thinking into that agile process? Yeah, so it's funny. I actually think they are. What, what I'm seeing happening over the last five years, I've worked at many organizations that invested over 30 to 60 people in UX design, as you talked about, and then yeah. ones that have invested under five or maybe even just one person. And what I'm seeing more and more is the role of UX and design thinking and user-centric thinking is falling more and more on the product managers and the design team. So mm. oftentimes you, you have these hybrid roles that are happening. And actually, I've even implemented that at TreviPay. So all of my product managers and designers are trained on design sprints and design thinking. And every time they go into, and actually a few engineering team leads. So more and more, you can't just silo it to one group. In yeah. order to have the buy-in, you really have to have most of the group trained in order to have that effectiveness. Totally agree with that. I see your point in some people being trained on it, but like I'm talking about like, and, and, and I'm going back, in the, not the role I'm in today, but the prior role. But we had like 150 people in these product teams and we we're like, we're training every one of you. And, and that was a big undertaking decision from leadership to say, yes, we see the value here. And I credit them for actually seeing it and saying, yeah, we need this inside our teams. We, we understand the, the power of it and, and the impact that it's going to have. But then getting these teams doing it and going through the training, like they'd be coming out and like calling their friends like on like the other side of the floor. I mean, this is pre-pandemic a lot too. And they're like, you got to do this training. Like it was like, it was mind blowing to a lot of folks and really opened up the aperture in terms of what they can do as a team and the results that they can achieve. Teresa, I want to talk about metrics, right? You, obviously, we, a lot of these teams have OKRs tied into like broader business strategy and KPIs. Yeah, how do you measure success of this? Like, What are the types of things that teams or businesses should be looking at to say, we've implemented this process, right? We're doing these design sprints, whether they're two days, three days, or five days, or two hours rather. We're seeing value like, what are the types of metrics that they should put into place to, to understand if this has been successful or not? Because that, that also is critical. And it's not necessarily just the OKR, right? There are probably other things that you need to be measuring as part of this overall effort. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. And in addition to design sprint metrics that I'll talk about, like you also touched on a, a really key point, which is design sprints are really just one part of our UX process that we're implementing. So we have user personas, we integrate with lots of behavioral metric tools, such as amplitude, we're collecting NPS or scores and VOC data. So all of the data that we have are data elements that we're bringing in to these design sprints and are part of that metric process as well. So perhaps we release a new feature on a quicker way to reset your password. We're able to immediately see those results after we release it just through the metrics that we have by the increase of clicks on the website. So metrics really does become a big part of the buy-in as in order to continue 
doing these design sprints, which I mentioned we've done over 20 Mm -hmm. the last year to continue doing them is the reason why we have that buy-in is because we're able to deliver on the value of the design sprints. Very, very cool. I've got a couple more questions for you. So I mentioned when we last chatted, I've been asking guests, what is the question you would ask my next guest? Now, the, the person that asked this question that I'm going to put in front of you is a senior executive at, at Best Buy. Great conversation. I can't wait to publish it. Her question was, what are the roadblocks? And I'd, maybe you answer this even from what you're seeing in the folks that you're, you're coaching, right? And you're training on this methodology. What are the roadblocks that keep companies and brands from really centering and making decisions that are, that are in the best interest of the customer? Yeah, that's a really great question. So we talked a bit about KPIs and OKRs earlier. And sometimes I feel over the the past five years, especially, and especially with the pandemic and hitting goals that we're so focused on KPIs and OKRs as organizations and hitting goals that we're focusing on the concept of hitting a goal and we're not focusing on the user. So let's say that we get some really extensive feedback on a feature, but it doesn't align with our company vision. So we pass up on the opportunity because we know that that's not what we're working on this year. And we might be losing out on something that would be really valuable for customers because we're not tying it back to a goal. We're not innovating and and taking that, that time to do something different and inventive for them. Very cool. I love that answer. Love that answer. All right, I'm going to turn it to you now. What question should I ask my next guest? Yeah. So I've talked a lot about stakeholder Mm buy-in. So I think for my next guest, I would have to say, how do you overcome situations where your stakeholders are not in agreement on a solution to a problem? That's a great question to ask. One, because it's big. Two, because everyone has suffered that. I won't tell you on air who my next guest is. I'll I'll tell you uh, off air. And uh, it's the founder and CEO of a company. I will tell, I will share that much on air, but uh, I think that's gonna be a great question for them to answer. One, because I think they're gonna have a really interesting perspective as sort of a founder because they have a little bit more swagger and sort of the request, but uh, I'll be, I'll be interested to hear the result and I'll let you know what their response is as well when, when we publish the show. Yeah, I'm um, excited. Hey, Teresa, before we wrap up, I personally love this question. I get a lot of feedback from listeners that they love this question, uh, but where do you go for your inspiration? Yeah, so I, I'd say my biggest inspiration, I read probably about 10 books a month. And for me, really just learning from, I mentioned a lot of automation earlier. Yeah. So for me, that inspiration is, is coming from what I'm reading and learning. And I consider myself a, a lifelong learner. And I think that's how we come up with better ideas and improve on them by learning from others that have kind of gone through it and come up with different ideas. Yeah, that's awesome. 10 books a month is a lot. I think I'm like a five or six, but 10 is a lot. I don't know where you find the time to do that because you've got kids and you've got a family and you've got a, like a big job too. So like kudos to you. Like you must be like a fast reader. Um, yeah. I mean, you got, awesome. you got to go on two X. You can't depend, depending. I, and I say, I do a mix. I do a mix of reading and audiobooks. I got will it. say. It's not all, it's not all reading. So when you're doing the audiobooks, you gotta, you gotta speed it up. So I, this is off topic, but like, I find that when I'm listening to a book, I, my, my mind wanders more. And I don't kind of get, right? If I'm reading a book, like I'm in it and I'm not distracted. I'm easily distracted as, as you could probably tell. I probably have HED as an adult too. But like, how do you not wander? Like, how do you stay focused? Or do you kind of like have it on the background and you're kind of like bouncing around doing your stuff, just kind of doing life around it? 
No, I, I actually, in a similar fashion, like I'm not someone that multitasks with my audiobook. So I can go on a walk and I, I'm very focused or I'm just like in my living room, listening to the book, absorbing it. And I'm a, a very, like not surprising because I'm in product and UX design, but I'm a very visual learner and thinker. Yeah. So as I'm hearing or reading, I'm actually visualizing the situation. And um, I always keep a little notebook by my side because yeah. I, I always have new ideas that pop up in my head of well, what if I did this or what if we did this? And so I'm always kind of just thinking and writing down ideas. And that's kind of how you learn from your learning. It's not necessarily about the content, but what happens while you're listening and learning. Very cool. Teresa, if, if folks want to learn more about about you or even just, you know, what you're doing through Lucid, what's the best way to get in touch? Absolutely. Happy to connect on LinkedIn. I also have, you can go to a website, lucidstartupconsulting.com. And as mentioned, I've got uh, several workshops that are going to be out the second half of the year. So lots of signups for August through December. And cool. I look forward to connecting with others. And thanks so much for this opportunity. This yeah, no, great. it's our pleasure, Teresa. It's one, it's been great to get to know you. Like I, I mean, I've been learning from you since we first talked many, many moons ago. And we'll make sure to put all those details in the show notes as well so people can get access. But gosh, thanks for the gift of your time today. It's been awesome to talk to you. Awesome to get to know you over the last couple of months. I'm just, I'm excited to see your continued success. It's just, it's been really fun to just have the conversations that we've been having. And just really thank you for that. Thank you as well, Bill. This has been really great. And I, I've enjoyed learning from you as well. So. Cool. Very cool. All right, everybody. Another great show. We're out. We'll see you next week. Talk to you soon, Thanks everyone. for listening to Be Customer Led with Bill Stakos. We are grateful to our audience for the gift of their time. Be sure to visit us at BeCustomerLed.com for more episodes. Leave us feedback on how we're doing or tell us what you want to hear more about. Until next time, we're out. We're out.